The talk this evening is on spirituality and relationship. To be alive, to be human, essentially means to live in relationship. Our lives are obviously an ongoing process of relationship, of interacting, of giving, of receiving. We relate to objects, we relate to people, we relate to nature, we relate to sense impressions, we relate to ourselves. And it's fairly apparent to us that it's not possible in any way to divorce ourselves from relationship. It's also apparent that our relationships, this whole process of relationship, can be a source in our lives of a great deal of joy and appreciation and growth. Our relationships can also be, often are, a source of a great deal of pain and conflict and confusion. Our relationships are a medium through which we can find ourselves deepening a sense of connection and oneness with life. Our relationships also have the potential to be a medium in which we find ourselves increasingly alienated or divided or separated from others and from ourselves. Very rarely is our relationships, are our relationships a source of indifference. The two things feel two aspects of living, of relating, which are obvious. One is that it is not possible to divorce ourselves from the whole dynamics of relationship and all that it involves. Even if we were to sit in meditation for the majority of our lives with our eyes closed, we're still, even in that process, relating to ourselves, our thoughts, our feelings, our memories, our plans. And when we open our eyes and come out of our meditation as such, the world is still very much there as we left it, as a place which has a power to nurture us, also which has a power to threaten us. Second area of relationship, which is very apparent, is that probably for most of us, this whole area of relationship is our Achilles heel. It's our area where we find our vulnerability, where we find our spots, our points within ourselves where we're easily overwhelmed, where we're easily overpowered. And it really doesn't seem to matter how much time we may spend sort of improving ourselves or accumulating some sort of portfolio of credentials, be they material or spiritual. When it comes down to the actual process of having to relate to another person, having to relate to ourselves, then all of this kind of accumulation that we have in our lives tends to mean very little. It doesn't matter if we have endless strings of letters after our names. We still sit down with another person, we find ourselves projecting, we find ourselves defending, we find ourselves bringing to that whole sphere of existence our needs and our vulnerability. Relationship is our Achilles heel in that when we look at the times in our lives, in the past and in the present, where there's been a lot of conflict and there's been a lot of pain, invariably that conflict and pain takes place in relationship. 
we look at the times in our lives where we felt remorse, where we felt guilt, where we felt things unresolved. Again, it's invariably relationship with other people. We look at the times or the experiences in our lives that have made the deepest impression upon us. And when you sit quietly with oneself, the things that repeat themselves in the mind that seem difficult to let go of invariably have their source in this whole area of relating. It is, I feel, our Achilles' heel. <clears throat> in that relationship, involves us on our most fundamental level. We bring to relationship our most fundamental needs as a human being. We bring to relationship our needs for love, our needs for acceptance, our needs for care, our need to, to give. Because we bring our most fundamental needs to relationship, it becomes very charged. Relationships have a tremendous amount of power because they involve us in every level of our being in almost every moment of our lives. And relationships also have a lot of charge because they are a mirror for us. When we find ourselves being judgmental, when we find ourselves being reactive, when we find ourselves projecting, often when we're able to be with that, to actually have a sense of what is taking place within ourselves. So often we find that our projections, our judgments, our reactions may have, yes, something to do with the objective person situation. But invariably our judgments, our re reactions tell us a tremendous amount about the quality of our own being, hmm? the quality of our own minds. Because of the all embracing power of relationship. Fear that we simply cannot afford so many of the superficial divisions that the mind makes. We cannot afford these kind of separations that the mind creates between our inner being, our spiritual being, and our life of relationship. Nor can we afford so many of the judgments and the values that are born of those divisions that sees our spiritual life as somehow separate, more holy, more high, more enlightened, and looks upon our life of relationship as an area of our lives that is of less significance, that's more worldly, that's less important. Relationships is our area of living where we express our humanity. We express our potential. We express the quality of our being. And if our spirituality is in any way to be all-embracing, if it's to be vital, if it's to be present, then it needs to embrace this whole field of relationship and really look upon it as an area of our lives which offers a tremendous amount of growth. Look upon it as an area of our lives that we can call upon to learn from, to grow through. And that this whole area of relating with one another, relating with ourselves, is in itself a vital and significant vehicle for developing in understanding, for developing in love, for developing in compassion. 
Traditionally in spirituality, it's presented that we have certain needs as human beings. It's presented that we have needs for food, for shelter, for, for medicine, for clothing. And often this is regarded as basically what you need to live. And if you have all that, then the rest of it is up to you. But often that seems to me a very kind of limited perspective on what our actual needs are. Because it seems to me that as a human being, each of us as individuals, also have another very basic need that is essential to recognize if we value our own growth, our own inner well-being. And that is the need for love and all of the qualities that love brings with it. That we do have a need within ourselves and within our lives, a need for love, a need for trust, a need for acceptance. Certainly, if we look at our own children, if we look at other children, we see that need is not a kind of luxury, that that need for love is a basic essential in children's growth. That children simply don't thrive, they don't grow, unless they live in an environment where they're cared for, loved, accepted, trusted. And that, that love or that loving environment is an essential necessity for a child to grow up where they can have a relationship to the world which is relatively free from fear, from alienation, from um, a sense of, of total separation. And if that need is not provided for children, then children simply withdraw and at times they die. It is, it's a fact. I think it's unrealistic to expect that we as individuals come to some magical age in our development of 16, 18, 21, where suddenly that need ceases to exist. Yes, well, we don't need care anymore, we don't need love anymore, we don't need trust anymore, because we're at this kind of magical category of adult. Seems to me that the need for love, to give it, to receive it, to open our hearts, to live in caring, accepting relationships, continues very much to be a driving force in our lives. And to attempt to deny that need within ourselves leads to alienation. It leads to separation. If we look ever at the times when we feel really disconnected in our lives, when there's depression, when we feel disconnected from other people, from the world, if we look at the times in our lives when we feel great deal of fear or aggression or defensiveness, invariably the very quality or characteristic that distinguishes those times, those experiences, those relationships, is an absence of love. There's an absence of trust, there's an absence of any sense of connectedness. And the impact of that upon our own minds, upon our own feelings, upon our own hearts, makes a tremendously deep impression. That disconnection from other people, that disconnection from nature, that disconnection from the world is the basis of coming to feel in relationship to oneself, worthless, inadequate, without value. That those feelings, those inner experiences that happen can't be divorced from that disconnection that happens inwardly and outwardly when there is an <clears throat> absence of love, an absence of trust. 
No doubt, all of us have experienced also the nurturing power that love and trust have in our lives. When you've come into a relationship with another person, a one-to-one relationship, or if you live in an environment, a community of friends where there's acceptance and trust and care, then those qualities, that environment, makes a powerful impression upon our own minds and feelings. That acceptance, that love that's there, allows openness, allows us to open our own hearts, allows us to open our own feelings, brings another dimension to communication, and in that also a greater depth of understanding. We've also experienced the pain, the opposite of those environments, the pain that can come when there has been an extension of trust, an extension of love and care, and that has some way been exploited or abused. We've all experienced the pain, possibly, of a relationship that comes to an end, where you feel your own sense of value, your own sense of worth, is somehow undermined or devalued. The painfulness of those times, the memory of it, leads often to a kind of withdrawal. If you feel that you've been exploited or abused or unloved or lack of acceptance in some ways, often the direct result of it is a kind of withdrawal from other people, from life, and the carrying of that memory of pain tends to lead to this denial of the fertility of relationship. And it is often that memory of pain, it is often that kind of feeling of worthlessness or fear that is often the source of separating spirituality from relationship. When people choose to lead a kind of life in which there is a denial of the value of relationship, it's often motivated by pain or by the memory of pain, which leads to fear. When that withdrawal takes place, then spirituality takes on a particular flavor. If there's a withdrawal from life, from other people, if there's a presence of fear or the unwillingness to take risks, then spirituality takes on a particular flavor of being a kind of simply a a way of developing only a kind of distance detachment from things, from people, from oneself. Often then spirituality is just interpreted as being a path of just watching things. And there's a sense of an unwillingness to be involved. There's a sense of an unwillingness to connect. And one can pull out of one's spiritual books all kinds of justifications for that lack of connection. You know, one hears about, about Mara and, and the, the, how the, the roots of suffering are in attachment and in clinging. And then one can really justify this kind of withdrawal from relationship, from people, from life. When that withdrawal or that development of a kind of watching or lack of involvement is motivated by fear or motivated by memories of pain, then spirituality often takes the flavor of becoming a path of rejection and a path of denial. 
And in that path of rejection, there's a denial of the fertility of relationship. There's a denial of one of the most essential processes of living, which is this moment-to-moment interaction with the world around us. And it's also a denial of one of the most vital needs that our universe, our world has, which is the need for love, the need for care, the need for sensitivity. And if you're aware of what can happen inwardly in that kind of interpretation of spirituality, that it is just a path of watching, often there comes about a more quiet mind. You can create an intensely concentrated mind, which when that concentration is applied to things, they dissolve. So on one level, the mind becomes very quiet, And in becoming very quiet, the mind also becomes much less troublesome. Your mind is really not very bothersome if nothing happens in it. So on one level, there's this advantage of creating this mind which is very placid, which is very quiet, which is very untroubled. And in that quietness, when feelings come up, when feelings arise within ourselves, then often the relationship to them, is that these feelings are simply another phenomenon to let go of. It is one relationship to feeling, but it is a relationship, I fear, which doesn't appreciate the creativity, the creative potential that our feelings have. It doesn't appreciate that feelings are our basis of connection with one another and with the world that doesn't appreciate that the path of nurturing and opening the heart is in itself a path of developing and growing in understanding and in inner freedom. Few people would consciously choose to live in an inner climate which feels cold or which feels barren. And yet I feel there's no doubt that pain and the memory of pain can be a tremendously powerful force in our lives. I feel it's very misguided to make these divisions, to try in any way to separate spirituality from relationship. And the whole history of that separation has not led to a world where there's a real noticeable increase of sensitivity and care and understanding. And we live in a world which is characterized by the immensity of the suffering in it. And it seems to me spirituality, if it has any validity, must address suffering. And to address suffering seems to me it's very obvious then that we must address relationship. To be only insular, withdrawn, to lead only an inner life, often means, yes, that we have personally less agitation and less disturbance, simply because our buttons aren't pressed. And yet how many people have experienced this actuality of being in a retreat and feeling so calm and so serene and so together and coming out of a retreat and only the next day or the next hour 
even the next minute to come into contact with someone who only needs to come up with one statement and immediately that serenity and calm and, and, and quietness simply dissolves into kind of a, an identifiable mass behind us. And we find the same reactions, the same projections, the same defensiveness arising. It's not in any way to deny the value of being within oneself quietly. But there's this balance needed where that being with oneself mustn't in any way be a retreat from life, a retreat from relationship. Because it is that process of interaction, that process of connecting with each other, which is the source of a tremendous amount of conflict when that whole process is not based on connectedness, when instead that process has mixed up within it a whole history and accumulation of fear and memory. Fear can motivate us to withdraw. And this is often an accusation that is aimed at meditators. Hmm? What are you doing for the world, sitting there on your butt, on your cushion? It's often leveled that meditation is a very kind of narcissistic way of living. And yet it's obvious, very apparent, that to be totally outwardly focused can be equally narcissistic. Sometimes a person doesn't have that connection inwardly. And the bulk of their attention in life, the bulk of their energy, is directed outwardly. And perhaps recognizing the need for love and acceptance, when the attention is directed outwardly, then those needs are seen as being fulfilled solely through other people, through situations, through having, through gaining, through objects. And obviously that outer focus can become a tremendously self-centered way of living. When there is that disconnection inwardly, when we see the world just as a place to fulfill our need for happiness, our need for peace, our need for love, our need for acceptance, then our relationship to life can become tremendously self-centered and exploitive. When we find ourselves in a position of simply looking at the world as a series of objects, looking at people, reducing people to a series of objects, which have either the power to gratify us or the power to threaten us. And when that attention is directed outwardly, then so often this whole way of living develops where one is cultivating things which seem to have the power to fulfill our own needs and rejecting people, objects, situations, simply because they offer us nothing. They offer us nothing in terms of fulfilling what I, as an individual, want or feel my needs are. And in that kind of relationship to life, our needs can become all-consuming. And when they become all-consuming at the price of inner care, when there is inner neglect, then the price we pay is perpetuating separation. The price we pay is perpetuating division. (laughs) When we don't have 
a holistic spirituality, we tend to find ourselves adopting kind of extremes in our relationship. For one person, the extreme may be one of focusing totally on the outer world and projecting everything outwardly, the source of unhappiness and the source of happiness. If we project outwardly and look outwardly and see the tremendous amount of pain that there is in life, we may feel this need to work outwardly, to be involved in activism, in working with other people, in, in bringing about some sort of outer change. And yet in that, if we adopt that extreme and neglect our own inner well-being, so often we experience the effects of that in terms of tension, in terms of reactiveness, in terms of defensiveness. And then we find that we are creating the very problems that we're trying to solve. Now the person may see the problems in the world and feel unable really to contribute anything very meaningful to resolving them. And that often leads to adopting this other extreme. Well, before I can contribute anything meaningful outwardly, I somehow have to solve my own problems. Before I can really bring about any kind of change in the world, I need to make myself better, understand myself more, get over my problems or my difficulties or my limitations more. And, yet, and when I feel more perfect, then I will contribute something to the world. And yet so often people find in meditation and spirituality that this point of perfection seems to recede constantly into the distance. Hmm? Because you sit down and you work and you come to retreat and one retreat you're working on anger and you feel, phew, that one's finished. You go home and then the next retreat you come down and something else pops up. And there can seem to be this endless series of things to work on. And then this point, this endless pursuit of being better, being more perfect, can mean that an increasing alienation from life and a lack of appreciation that love and compassion and peace are not so much ideals to be gained sometime in the future when we're more perfect, but that love and compassion and peace are qualities of the heart to be lived. And that it is in living them that we bring to our relationships a level of creativity and a way of learning. seems to me that the primary source of conflict in our world is separation. It's a separation between I and you. The sense of separation between I and you is the breeding ground for division, for judgment, for prejudice, for images. And as long as that separation exists, there's a potential for conflict. And that it's a real necessity in our lives to look at that separation, to really look at how much conflict that we experience is a necessity, and how much conflict is created through a real lack of connectedness on a fundamental level. In our relationships, we have the potential and the power to perpetuate separation. We have the potential and the power to become lost in our judgments, our prejudices and our images. But our relationships are very much also like an open book. They also have the potential to be an, 
tremendous and vital source of learning and developing a sense of connectedness. It is very difficult at times, it seems, to let go of our images, to let go of our memories, to let go of our defenses, to let go of all of those props that we surround ourselves with that perpetuate separation. Because in many ways it feels safer to be separate. Because to be not separate involves a great deal of risk, involves vulnerability, involves openness. And so the mind does feel breed these divisions. While on the level of the heart, for most of us, I feel there is a fundamental and intuitive recognition of the falseness of those divisions. Probably if we look within ourselves, recognize that we as an individual, as a human being, have a real urgent need for love, for care, that we cherish in our own hearts a wish to be free from fear, from pain and from conflict, to live with peace, with sensitivity, without limitation. And on the level of the heart must surely recognize that those very fundamental needs within us are shared by all living beings. And that our feelings and our fundamental level of being is where we find connectedness. If I can put aside my thoughts, my images of who you are, I can perhaps appreciate the connectedness in which we share. A holistic spirituality, more holistic spirituality, is one which really recognizes that our thought, our concept, our knowledge, our learning, doesn't necessarily in itself have the power to bring about an end to division. And that there is in it a holistic approach to life which really treasures freedom a real need for an opening of the heart. Holistic spirituality is one which recognizes the power and the potential that our relationships have, the potential that they have for each one of us to grow in love, to grow in care, to grow in sensitivity, and that we are not in any way separate from the world, and that if we can use our relationships creatively, open our hearts within ourselves, then that is what we live. That is what we extend to the world. That quality of being is what we extend in our thoughts, our speech and our actions. And it's in that extension that we discover a level of connectedness, a dimension of connectedness. feel a true understanding in spirituality also recognizes that there is no richness in accumulation of insights or experiences or states of mind, but that insight for us as an individual is only liberating if it is applied. It doesn't matter how much insight we have into non-self, into the need for love, the need for sensitivity, the need for compassion. If we don't live it, it simply becomes a memory. And many people who have spent a great deal of time in spirituality find they have their, almost their own kind of photo albums of, of insight memories. 
And yes, I remember the retreat in, in 76 when I really understood the, the need for equanimity or the retreat in 79 when I really understood the need for connection. And it all becomes very meaningless unless our insight is something that is relevant and lived within our lives. And peace and love and connectedness are not ideals to be strived for. They're not existing on a pedestal as some kind of goal that we achieve or attain in the future. But that real opening of the heart inwardly and its expression outwardly comes through living those qualities in each moment. Those qualities that we feel within ourselves that we have the power to connect with inwardly. And in spirituality and relationship, there is no separation between them. There is no division. There's no difference. There's no distance in them. Spirituality and relationship then are a way of living, a way of being, a way of actually looking at our lives and living our lives in a way which is in accord with what we treasure inwardly. And that kind of spirituality, that kind of approach to relationship, is one which brings richness to our spiritual well-being, to the well-being of the relationships that we live in. May our beings live with sensitivity. May our beings live with love. May our beings live with compassion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.